and welcome to SRNA Nation, the podcast for the student registered nurse anesthetist. I'm your host, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining. Hey guys, welcome back to SRNA Nation. I am your host, Rachel Price, and I am thrilled to be here again with you guys today. Last week, we talked about the resting membrane potential of just a basic cell, and um, we kind of talked about how ions are just moving in and out and around those cells based on different types of stimuli and how those ions are charged. So when they move, it's just like a big old um, electric current that's moving around in the body and causing things to happen. We talked about the sodium and potassium gated channels that are on cell walls. And we talked about the sodium potassium ATPase pump. And as we get into the neuromuscular junction this week, some of these basic physiological functions we're going to cover here at this neuromuscular junction are so critical to so many of the drugs that we give in anesthesia and in critical care and in lots of other areas of medicine. For example, your paralytics are altering the way neurotransmitters are acting on the neuromuscular junction. Your local anesthetics are going to change the way that your um, sodium-gated channels act and send that action potential down a neuron, and so they're blocking some sodium channels. Um, There's so many different things that we do in anesthesia that really alter this process right here. So it's really important, and when we get into the cardiac tissue, so many of our cardiac drugs are literally just changing the way that these ion-gated channels work within the cardiac tissue and altering either our blood pressure or our cardiac output or how hard our heart is squeezing. So many different things um, that we do in healthcare are literally just manipulating ion channels, which is crazy if you think about it. We're just rerouting or changing or reducing or increasing an electrical current by the way that ions move or don't move inside of a cell. And that is such a huge majority of pharmacology. So when we understand these concepts, we're no longer seeing a list of drugs and saying, hey, amiodarone blocks sodium and potassium channels on the cardiac muscle. Okay, we can put that on a flashcard and we can memorize it and we can pass a test. But when you start to have this framework where you understand what is changing and what we're manipulating and how that changes the action potential and what it does, now all of a sudden, Somebody tells you, hey, amiodarone alters sodium and potassium ion channels. You're no longer just memorizing things on a flashcard, right? Because you understand how that impacts the whole action potential of the heart. And it makes sense because you have this framework that you're building on every time you learn something new and it's not just memorization anymore. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode and get a little refresher on the cell membrane potential, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Because like I said, I'm all about frameworks and creating a framework where we can build things on top of what we already know. And we're going to be pulling some of the concepts that we talked about with the resting membrane potential into this discussion about the neuromuscular junction. Some of those concepts that we're going to be building on are going to be those ion channels that are gated by voltages. And then the ion channels that were gated by neurotransmitters or different types of stimuli. So today we're going to look at the physical properties of the neuromuscular junction. What pieces of the body come together at this spot to create action? 
and then we're gonna look at the action potential and we're gonna explain how it's transferred from that nerve tissue into the muscle fiber to actually create movement. And then we're gonna talk about muscle contraction. And I'm so excited to have you guys along for the ride because like I said, we're building on that framework from last week and then we're gonna be able to take this same material and apply it moving forward when we talk about our cardiac muscle tissue and so many other great parts of anesthesia. So first of all, what are the physical properties of the neuromuscular junction? Well, we already said it's a spot where the nervous system and muscle of some sort come together, right? So we have a nerve cell and then we have what we call a synaptic cleft, which is this little tiny gap. And then we have our muscle cell. So you should be able to visualize your nerve cell based on your basic AMP courses. Um, just as a little refresher, you have this long, long cell with this thin body. And on the top, it kind of looks like a head with some crazy hair sticking out. And on the bottom, it's almost like if the nerve cell was your arm, then your fingers spread out really wide are the part of the cell that actually is going to go right up to the edge of that skeletal muscle cell. And in between there, there's this tiny little cliff that just falls off called the postsynaptic cleft. And it's this little space full of intracellular fluid where things can move around and signals can be sent from that nerve cell to that muscle tissue, right? So when the brain tells the nerve, hey, I want to move this piece of muscle tissue, it sends this action potential all the way down the neuron, right? We're not going to talk about Schwann cells or action propagation in the neuron right this second. We'll get into that later. We're just talking about getting that signal from that nerve into the skeletal muscle. So this action potential, which is really just the movement of ions, right? travels down the nerve cell. It gets to the very bottom to what we call the axon terminal. And the action potential itself was an electrical current, right? So based on what we talked about yesterday, we know that those currents a lot of times are sent by changing the voltage of that cell membrane. So at the very bottom of our axon, we have some voltage-gated channels, just like we talked about yesterday, right? But these guys are for calcium. So same concept, just a different ion. Remember, calcium has a plus two charge. The ones we talked about yesterday were sodium and potassium, and they had a plus one. So calcium's our bad boy right this second. Um, and he's just got a little stronger charge. He's a bigger dude. So I don't really know if he's bigger as far as the size of the atoms. So please, some chemistry person, do not correct me on that. Or do. I mean, but I don't know. I'm just saying he's got a stronger charge. So this action potential goes down to the end of our axon and the voltage goes up and we have these voltage gated calcium channels that fly on open. And so calcium ions are gonna diffuse right on into the axon terminal. So the voltage change is occurring at the end of our nerve in that axon terminal. And remember yesterday we talked about like all of your different things in the cell that just live there, your nucleus, your mitochondria, your Golgi, all those different things that are hanging out in the cell, these big proteins that make things all the time, they're always busy. So one of the things in the nerve cell that those different things make inside the cell is this neurotransmitter. It's just a signaling neurotransmitter 
and it is called acetylcholine. And so the nerve cell is all the time busy making acetylcholine and packaging it up in cute little UPS packages and sending it right on down to the edge of the axon terminal. So that's where they live. They're just, they get made, they get sent down in their cute little package. It's called a vesicle. And they live inside their little vesicle in the axon terminal, just waiting to get the opportunity to be released into their postsynaptic cleft and make things happen. Like that's their only purpose in life is just to get out into that spot and to, to do things. They're, they're the movers and the shakers. And moving forward, if I use the term ACH, I'm referring to acetylcholine. That's our abbreviation for it. So when this calcium comes in, these acetylcholines are hanging out in their little vesicles and they're just right on the edge, down there at the end of the axon terminal, just waiting to go for a ride out into the real world. And they've got this sensor, if you will, and remember, our voltage-gated calcium channels have just opened, calcium rushed in, and when calcium comes rushing in, those little acetylcholine-filled vesicles head on down to that cell membrane at the end of the axon terminals. They fuse, so they become part of that cell membrane, and then through exocytosis, they scoot on out into that postsynaptic cleft. And remember, exocytosis is just where you have a vesicle or a little bubble inside your cell, and it goes up and fuses to the cell wall, and then the cell wall spits it out, and endocytosis is like the same thing backwards. So something's floating around outside, the cell wants it, it kind of like makes a little U-shape in the cell wall and catches it, and then it turns its little U-shaped holder into more of like a circle or a vesicle, if you will. And then it just pops it on into the inside of the cell and now it's inside. So ACH is released from the axon terminal through exocytosis. So it's vesicle just fuses right on up to the edge, pops it on out. So now ACH has been released out into the postsynaptic cleft, right? And it just kind of diffuses on over to the muscle cell and the muscle cell has these receptors that ACH just wants to swim on over and bind to. And remember that in AMP, you talk about your different types of acetylcholine receptors, and you have your nicotinic and your muscarinic, and then those can be divided up a little bit more. But just for a reminder, these are your nicotinic receptors. So you, your ACH is binding to nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, or ACHR, on skeletal muscle cells. So going back to that framework from yesterday, the effect of ACH is that it's going to bind to some chemically gated channels for sodium and potassium. And so those chemically gated channels or ligand gated channels is another thing that you'll hear people call them, will open up and they are going to then change the potential right there on the muscle cell. So we'll get into what happens inside the muscle cell in just a minute, but I wanna pause right here and talk about a couple of anesthesia-related things. So when we give a paralytic, you have your non-depolarizing muscle relaxers and your depolarizing muscle relaxers. And they have a little bit different mechanism of action, but they both bind right here at this site. The only muscle relaxer that is really significant as far as a depolarizing agent is one that you've probably heard of, succeocholine. And it was introduced into medicine around the 1950s. And it's derived from a plant 
and it was used traditionally by indigenous people um, to literally poison the tips of their arrows to kill their prey or to kill their enemies. And that's known as curare, which is kind of cool because um, one of the clefts in capnography, the curare cleft, is a sign that your paralytic is wearing off. So that's a good way to remember that. So your succeocholine is going to be a competitive agonist. Your non-depolarizing muscle relaxers are going to be competitive antagonists. So what that means is that your succeocholine is actually going to bind to that site and its initial action is going to cause a stimulus, but then it's going to have a stronger bind right there at that binding site than other things or your acetylcholinesterase, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And so it's going to block any further action or any further stimulus by that neuronal axon that we just talked about. So it's basically a drug that's going to go in there, it's going to bind to these sites, and it's going to prevent your natural stimulation of your nervous system from causing that next contraction. But the significance of the fact that it actually is an agonist is that you do have some fasciculations, meaning that when you initially give your sucks, you can have some muscle contraction with that, and that muscle contraction can cause some myalgia, um, some post-operative pain and soreness for your patients. And I won't get too in the weeds on succeocholine because that is a rabbit hole that could be an entire episode. But we do see patients that have some inherited disorders that will affect their reaction to being given succeocholine. One that you've probably heard of is malignant hyperthermia. Um, no fun, bad day. And another one that can prolong the duration of action of succeocholine for quite some time is an acetylcholinesterase deficiency. So we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in the future. We won't get too caught up on it right now. And then we have our non-depolarizing muscle relaxers. The one that is most often used for like your rapid sequence innovation is going to be your rocuronium. Uh, you've probably used vecuronium in the ICU and some other paralytics on drips. But the big thing, the big takeaway with these drugs is that they're a competitive antagonist. So they're going to go into that same spot that your normal acetylcholine binds to, the same spot your succeocholine binds to, and they're going to bind, but they're just going to block it. They're just like hanging out like, not nah, ain't nobody getting through this door. Absolutely not. And they're not causing any muscle stimulation, so you don't have some of those fasciculations and some of the myalgias postoperatively, but... They're just sitting there guarding the gates. They're not letting anything happen. So taking a step back from anesthesia and going back to our physiology, your ACH is hanging out there in your postsynaptic cleft. It's bound to your muscle cell. And then acetylcholinesterase is this enzyme that comes along. He's like the street cleanup crew. He breaks down your ACH so you don't just have this continuous stimulation of your muscle tissue. And remember yesterday we talked about those ligand gated channels, which is basically just like chemical messenger gated channels. And then we talked about our voltage gated channels, right? So our acetylcholine comes in, it binds to that ligand gated channel, and it causes a little bit of influx of those sodium and potassium ions through that chemically gated channel, right? So that is our initial stimulus. And if that stimulus is strong enough, remember like we talked about yesterday, it's going to get us up to threshold. So our muscle cell is hanging out around negative 70, negative 75, depending on your textbook. And it, acetylcholine came along. It bound to these chemically gated 
channels for sodium and potassium, and it raised our resting membrane potential up to threshold, right? So, when that happens, now what do we have? We talked about it. We've already talked about it with calcium, right? We have voltage-gated channels that are just waiting. They're like, let's get to threshold. We've got some work to do. So, that's what happens. The end plate potential opens voltage-gated sodium channels, and that depolarizes the membrane, baby. Isn't that exciting? So that's our, remember our, our graph we talked about yesterday, our quick, quick upstroke in our action potential that takes us all the way up to like plus 35? This is it. We've reached threshold, our voltage-gated sodium channels open, and our membrane potential goes way up, and now we're depolarized, right? Cool. Awesome. And then what happens next? Our potassium-gated channels open, they come back in, repolarize, we're rocking and rolling. Like we've got this action potential that's just being spread all the way down this muscle cell, right? Because what is an action potential? It's essentially electricity, but how do we make it? We've got charged ions and they're just moving, moving around really fast. Big groups of charged ions moving back and forth is an electrical current. So remember, we're in a skeletal muscle cell. So if we're gonna talk about what happens next, we've got to know our basic components of our skeletal muscle cell, right? So do you remember you had T-tubules, which are like these tube systems that collect extracellular calcium. So calcium that's just floating around out there and they kind of bring it in. So this action potential has come through our skeletal muscle cell and it has run into, guess what? Some more voltage-gated channels. Can you believe it? These bad boys are all over the place. And once again, these are for calcium. So a good thing that I've heard a lot of people say is, remember, calcium equals contraction. So in your heart tissue, in your skeletal muscle tissue, in all these places, calcium is one of the things that is a big Mac Daddy key player in our muscle contraction of any kind. So our little action potential has headed on down into our T-tubules, our little, our little tube systems that are just bringing that extracellular calcium in and holding on to it, and then when that action potential hits those voltage-gated calcium channels on the T-tubules, it starts releasing that calcium out into the sarcoplasm, which is just a fancy, fancy word for the inside of a muscle cell, a skeletal muscle cell. Woohoo! So these calcium ions, they come rushing on in to the sarcoplasm, AKA, the swimming, swimming pool inside of our big old skeletal muscle cell and they bind to something and I bet it's something that you've heard of before. Troponin. Yeah, like the same stuff you measured during a heart attack, troponin. And so you've got like your actin and myosin and they're kind of like your two little contractile units and they overlap a little bit normally inside of your skeletal muscle cell. But you've got this stuff called tropomyosin, which is just like being a troll on the bridge. And it's preventing anything from happening as long as our tropomyosin troll is hanging out there, not letting our myosin get across the bridge to hang out with actin, which is just rude. I mean, he's just being a troll, honestly. So when calcium gets released from the T-tubule, it's like, hey, remember, he was our Mac Daddy. He was our big boy with our two charged particles. He's a, he's a lot tougher guy than our potassium and our sodium. 
So when he comes into the picture now, he's like, hey, Traponin, come on. Move this guy out of the way. He's being a troll. And Traponin's like, yeah, man, you're right. I mean, I've been telling him that all day. And so together they kind of team up on Tropomycin. And the two of them against him, Tropomycin's kind of a weak dude. And he, he bounces. So now it's like a love story. Actin and Mycin, they can finally get together. Tropomycin is out of the way. Thank God. So up until this time, just to be a little scientific, tropomycin has been blocking myosin binding sites on actin. And calcium came in, it bound to troponin, and then that moved the tropomycin out of the way of the myosin binding sites on actin. So now you have this little energized myosin head, and it goes over and it can bind to actin. And it makes this cross bridge because they kind of like overlap just normally. Think about like if you put your hands together, but then you slid them apart um, until your fingers just touched each other, but they were still overlapping. That's kind of how actinomycin live. And so they form these little cross bridges and they slide the actin past the myosin toward the M line in a power stroke. And I just said energized myosin head. So how do you guys think that myosin head is energized? What did we talk about yesterday that was like our basic energy component in the cell? That's right. It's ATP. Except for here, we're starting with something that's energized. So our little energized myosin head is starting with ADP in a phosphate group. So it's, it's ready to rock and roll because it's already been um, through hydrolysis. So as our little power stroke completes, we have ADP in our phosphate group that have been living on our myosin head, and it's released. And then our cross bridge between our actin and myosin is still engaged, right? So new ATP, our adenosine triphosphate, comes in and binds to our myosin head, and it is what the hydrolysis happens again and it splits it into ADP and our phosphate group just like yesterday but that splitting is what causes our myosin head to disengage to release that cross bridge between our myosin and our actin so then our myosin head resets into its first position that it started in which is a high energy position because is it holding ATP or is it holding ADP in a phosphate group it's holding ADP in a phosphate group, right? Because that's its resting, high energy, ready to rock and roll spot. Like if it was holding ATP, another reaction would have to occur before it was ready to go ahead and form those cross bridges and make things happen. But because it has the ADP with that phosphate group, it's a high energy position that it sits in. And then our ATP is what disengages it. Okay, cool. So this whole process is just going to keep repeating itself as long as your big boy calcium ions are there and can act on our troponin. So when calcium reuptake occurs through a pump very similar to our sodium and potassium pump, it's also going to utilize energy, it's going to be transported back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum for storage for later because our T-tubules caused calcium-induced calcium release from our sarcoplasmic reticulum. It's going to be reuptaken into the sarcoplasmic reticulum 
and then contractions over until the next stimulus comes. Because once again, that mean little troll, Trypmycin, has come back in and he has blocked our bridge. So we talked about our physical properties of the neuromuscular junction. Remember, we have our long neuronal cell and we're talking about the bottom of it. So it's like our arm with our hand spread really wide and the part that would be our hand is our axon. And then we've got this big cliff between our hand of our axon and our muscle cell. And we've got some different types of channels, just like what we talked about. We've got our acetylcholine hanging out in the little vesicles, ready to rock and roll and make things happen. And we've got our muscle cell with all these cool components and all these cool channels and different things that come together and they make us move. They do all these things all the time for us to function, for me to talk right now, for you to listen. All these things, these voltage-gated channels and ion movement and all these things are happening constantly inside of our body at the cellular level. Isn't it amazing? So we also talked about that transfer of the action potential from our neuronal cell, right, down across that synaptic cliff into our muscle cell. We said we've got some voltage-gated calcium channels that cause that acetylcholine release. Our acetylcholine goes across our synaptic cleft. It binds to some receptors on our muscle cell. It works on some ligand-gated channels, which then causes us to reach our threshold. Amazing, right? And then our threshold is a change in our resting membrane potential, which activates all those little fast sodium channels to open on up because those are voltage gated, remember? And they're going to send that action potential all the way through the muscle cell down to our functional unit. Our T-tubules are going to release calcium. Calcium is going to act on our troponin. Troponin is going to move that amino troll, tropomyosin out of the way so that the love story that is actin and myosin can happen within the muscle cell. And it's all powered by yours truly, adenosine triphosphate. Oh, it's amazing. Thank you guys so much for joining me again. We'll be back soon with some more physiology core concepts. And we're going to talk about some cardiac muscle and we are going to keep applying these awesome foundational concepts. Thank you guys. Have a great week.